Amen. Well, as you know, we are studying through the book of Acts. The sermon series is called One, and we're starting by learning about the way that God established his church, his one church. So we've been titling this part of the series, One Church. If you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to tell you uh, a story. It's a pretty bizarre story, and as far as uh, bizarre stories go, if you want a bunch of them, and you want to find them all in one place, you should go to the Old Testament book of Judges, because the book of Judges is just full of weird and strange, and it makes you go, what in the world is this all about? Uh, Somewhere around, I forget the chapter, somewhere around chapter 12 to 15, you'll find the story of one of the judges, a man named Samson. Now, I want to just set the stage for you. As you, we just read Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And Abraham went on to have some sons and that uh, his sons grew into the great nation that is now known as the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Well, At the time of our story, thousands of years ago, when Samson was born, this nation of Israel, who God promised would be great, is living under the captivity and oppression of a foreign government, the Philistine Empire. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see the Philistines come up time and time and time again. And inevitably, God's people and the Philistines do not have good relationships with one another. So the story begins with some tension between God's people and a foreign country. And then Samson is born. And Samson, pretty quickly we realize, is a charismatic young leader who's about to become one of the judges of the nation of Israel. And that's just to say in this time when Israel didn't have a king leading them, they had a series of judges. And Samson would become one of them. Well, we meet Samson... And he's a young adult, and he decides he wants to get married. And he makes a somewhat bizarre decision considering his national circumstances. Samson decides to get married to a Philistine woman. And from the Philistine point of view, this is kind of like Samson stealing from them. And so picture this. Samson and his wife are at the wedding party, and all of Samson's family is there, and a bunch of the Philistines is there, and the situation is awkward. This is not how you want your wedding day to go down. Well, it's like Samson decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shovel some fuel onto the fire of this awkwardness. And he tells a riddle to a group of 30 Philistine men who are there at the wedding. And he says this, he says, hey, if you guys can solve this riddle, I will give you 30 pieces of clothing, which I think was meant to be like something really a lavish gift of some sort. But if you can't solve the riddle, he says, you have to give me 30 pieces of clothing. Well, the Philistines are pretty mad because the riddle's really hard and they can't figure it out and they're thinking to themselves, wait, 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 wait. You just stole one of our women, and now you're going to basically steal 30 pieces of clothing from us? Not okay, Samson. Well, the men make a plan. They go to Samson's wife, who you remember is a Philistine, and they're like, you've got to tell us the answer to the question. So they finally pressure her, 
She tells them the answer. They tell Samson the answer. And Samson realizes immediately that he's been tricked. And he's furious. So you know what he decides to do? (laughs) Just to make sure that his wedding is a really wonderful circumstance. In order to get the 30 pieces of clothing he owes these men, he goes and kills 30 other Philistine men. He strips them of their clothing. He brings those 30 pieces of clothing to the 30 Philistines and he goes, you won, here's your reward. Talk about, talk about family tension in the beginning of the marital relationship. Samson, what in the world are you doing? Well, the situation goes from bad to worse. Somehow in the midst of this, Samson, Samson's own father, I think he decides he's going to try to just bail on the whole circumstance. Samson's father takes Samson's Philistine bride and gives her away to another man, to another Philistine man, as if this is going to make things better somehow. Okay, pause. What I'm doing right now is telling you a story from the Old Testament. And in this story, you might have picked up, women are treated more like property than like persons. And I want to teach you something really critical about understanding Scripture. See, there's a couple categories in which we can read these stories from Scripture. One category is that stories are descriptive of what was happening. They simply describe the events as they happened. Descriptive. There's another category that we call prescriptive. Parts of the Bible where it's telling a story, but it's telling a story in order to prescribe action to you and to me. It's sort of say, this is the way it should be. The story of Samson is a descriptive story telling us how things were at that time, in that place, in that culture. The fact that women were treated like property, not like persons, that is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. The point of the story is not that it's okay for fathers to give their sons' brides away to other men. That is not the point of the story. just want to make sure we're clear on that. So Samson finds out his dad just gave his wife away. And you can understand that Samson is furious. So Samson does what any normal human being would do. He goes out and he captures 300 foxes. He takes those foxes and he ties their tails together. So he now has 150 pairs of foxes. How long did it take? to get 150 pairs of foxes. How much injury did Samson sustain tying these foxes together? I don't know. And the Bible apparently doesn't think this is important information to include, even though I think we really should have this information. Well, he takes these pairs of foxes, and for each one he gets a torch, and he attaches the torch to the tails of the foxes. And if you're thinking to yourself, what does it look like? when you have 150 pairs of foxes with torches together. Fortunately, Samson had a photographer with him, and we got a great picture of it. 
Samson, to get back at the Philistines, releases all of these foxes into the harvested grain fields where all the grain has been stacked and is drying out, and Samson burns down the food supply of the Philistines because somehow he thinks they're to blame for his father giving his wife away. So just to recap briefly, what started with two nations with some tense relationships with one another escalated to a man choosing to take a Philistine bride, which resulted in them trying to trick him to get back. And so he murdered 30 of them to get back. So somehow they took his bride back from them. So he burned down their grain fields. And now they raise up an army of 300 men intending to capture and torture Samson. Samson, being somewhat full of himself, allows himself to get captured. And right when he's in the middle of this group of 300 Philistines, he breaks the ropes that have tied him together. He bends down, picks up the jawbone of a donkey, and slaughters all 3,000 of the Philistines. What started with some tense interfamily relationships has grown into the murder of 3,000 men. Why in the world am I telling this bizarre story? Here's the reason. What this story illustrates is something that I think you have seen and you have maybe even experienced in your life as well. In all sorts of different realms of life, if we let conflict run its own course, if we just let conflict go the way that it's going to go on its own, conflict escalates. That's what it does. That's where it goes. If we just respond the way that our sinful hearts respond, we're always going to respond a little more. And then the other person's going to respond a little more and a little more and a little more. We live in a world whose brokenness has created a situation where thousands of years ago and today, conflict escalates. And if you look around the world today, if you look around your life personally, our life nationally, you see this happening all over the place. I mean, let's be honest. Our political circumstance as a nation today is evidence of escalating conflict between various political realms of thought. Yes, there's always been tension. There's always been disagreement. But I hear people saying all the time that the division is greater than it seems to have ever been before. You look in your family, and if it's not you, it's somebody close to you, and we see how what starts as some kind of sibling rivalry or a squabble can escalate into decades of estrangement between brother and sister, or mother or father. We've seen it in marriages. What starts as relational challenges or tension can escalate into two people who feel like they can't even be in the same room as one another, and they break their marriage vows. I mean, this is a heavy topic. Sometimes we don't want to talk about it, but the fact of the matter is, in every single one of our lives, we've experienced conflict, and we've seen how left to its own conflict escalates. So here's the question I want to ask you, kind of a hard question. But I want you to take seriously finding an answer, and I want that answer to kind of sit in the back of your mind and in your heart as we 
transition to the book of Acts today. Here's my question. Where in your life have you experienced the escalation of conflict? Where have you seen it? Where have you felt it? Where have you been hurt by it? Where are you weighted down by its challenge right now today? Maybe, you know, maybe you're fortunate and the conflict you have in life right now is somewhat small and feels manageable. Maybe you're in the middle of something that feels overwhelming and insurmountable. I don't know what it is, but would you call to mind right now a place in your life that you're currently facing conflict? And here's why I want you to do that. See, we've been reading through the book of Acts together, right? And what we've read so far in the book of Acts is that Jesus gave his church a mission. He said, you will be my witnesses. And so just like Jesus gave his life to bless us, we are also to give our lives to bless others. That is how we are a witness of Jesus on earth. And we're supposed to start with that right where we're at, but we're supposed to try to see that mission expand ever farther to the very ends of the earth. And as we've been reading through Acts together, we've been kind of building a definition of the church. And here's what we've been saying. The church is a community of people who live lives by repentance and baptism, live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, devoted to scripture, community, generosity, and prayer. And because that's our power and that's our devotion, God is going to use the details of the story of your life and my life and our life in order to demonstrate his power. Your story, God's power. And with all of that in mind, we seek to live lives constantly filled by God's Holy Spirit, cleansing us from all the other brokenness in the world around us. Well, the next part of the story is this somewhat idyllic community, a church that's gathering thousands, that's daily feeding hundreds, even thousands of people that is praying together and worshiping together and selling property to give with radical generosity for the good of one another. Into that community comes some conflict. And so I want you to think about the conflict in your life because we're going to find out about the church and how they respond to the conflict in their life. So turn now to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to talk about some conflict within the Christian community. Words are going to go on the screen, or you can read along in your scripture. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group 
They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, I want to take just a minute and uh, unpack a few of the things that we see in this text. So first of all, we find out that the church has within it a group of Jewish people. But those Jewish people are broke into two categories, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. So we just want to briefly remind ourselves about the experience of the church in Jerusalem today. First of all, at the beginning, the church, the gathering of people committing their lives to follow Christ, the church was primarily a Jewish community. Well, what do you mean by that, Carl? Well, when we say Jewish, we actually have to divide a couple different aspects of that word. So first of all, we have ethnic Judaism. There is the ethnic group called the Jewish people, descended from Abraham. We just read about Abraham in Genesis 12. Descended from Abraham, a ethnic group of people who were chosen by God and formed a religious community. And therefore, we also have the Jewish religious community centered on the temple, practicing their worship in particular ways with particular customs. Well, for people who were ethnically Jewish and religiously Jewish, these words naturally combine with one another. However, within Judaism, there were many people who were not ethnically Jewish, but indeed became part of the Jewish religion. And when these Jewish women and men from various ethnic backgrounds heard about the risen Lord Jesus Christ, they believed that Jesus was the natural result of their Jewish faith. And so they fully believed that they were Jewish people following Jesus as their Lord. Something that is still true today. There is many, many people around the world who are Messianic Jews who maintain their Jewish identity as a way of worshiping Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Well, here's the problem. We have ethnic Jews and we have Hellenistic Jews who are all now part of the church, but it turns out that in the daily food distribution, the widows among the Hellenistic Jews, some of the most impoverished and vulnerable people in their community, they are being consistently overlooked. Have you ever been overlooked? It's brutal. It's painful. And because they're being overlooked, we hear that the Hellenistic Jews are grumbling about this injustice. And therefore, there is conflict. So that's the circumstance with some rather uh, complicated historical, uh, ethnic, religious circumstances coming to bear on the immediate conflict of inequality and injustice. But that brings us to our second question. What really is the cause of this conflict? There's two different trains of thought. 
The first train of thought is, you know what? If the church is really thousands of people, and they're really feeding thousands of people every single day, that is a giant administrative task. And so maybe this oversight was simply administrative failure. It was innocent. Nobody was trying to do it. It was just the result of the fact that this was such a giant project. There's another train of thought that says, no, 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 no. The fact that they name it as an injustice straight along ethnic lines makes it clear that somehow within the Christian community, there was racism at work. There was intentional ethnic division with the people in charge of the food discriminating against a certain people group. Well, unfortunately, the text tells us nothing to answer the question of which one of these two causes actually brought about this conflict. We know there was inequality and injustice, and we know that inequality and injustice, whatever its cause, resulted in conflict within the community. But here's what else we know. We know that this conflict in this story, even though it was resolved somewhat smoothly, as far as the text tells us, we know that this conflict is not unique to the church. As a matter of fact, uh, just a few chapters later in Acts, when we get to Acts chapter 15, we're going to find out about even more racially charged conflict. So much so that people are called in from across the Roman Empire to have a council of Christian leadership to determine what are we going to do about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, because the conflict was just escalating there. If you read the letters of Paul, much of the rest of the New Testament, you find out that a ton of what Paul writes to early Christian churches spread throughout Rome, a ton of what he writes is, this is how you need to resolve the conflict in your church. (laughs) It's funny because, you know, the first five chapters of Acts, they present a picture of a community that's somewhat idealized. People are generous, people are in community, everything is shared and wonderful and happy. And you've heard people say sometimes, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but it's not that uncommon that people will look at our church today, like the modern American church or the modern Western church, and they'll say things like, oh man, if only we could go back to the way the church was at the beginning. If only we could go back to the early church, wouldn't that be great? I mean, yes, the generosity in the community was great, but the fact of the matter is, what did the early church look like? It looked like a community filled with conflict, trying to make the best out of challenging, differing points of view, trying to figure out how to keep relationship, even though we were divided in opinion on all sorts of different matters. So one of the first observations we need to make as we're thinking about conflict in our own lives and how we respond to it, as we're looking at conflict in the world around us, one of the first things we have to acknowledge is that conflict is not the antithesis of community. In fact, it is an inevitable part of community. Both in this story, in Acts chapter 6, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we see that within Christian community, conflict is normal. And you know that. And I know that. Because we've experienced it. 
because we've all felt the weight and the challenge of conflict. And so the final question is then, how did the church respond to the conflict in their midst? Now, let's just acknowledge a few things about some of our standard responses to conflict. I bet you've seen this before. Maybe you've even done this before. Here's strategy number one that is very common when interpersonal conflict arises. I mean, imagine it. You you know, you're in the office around the water cooler, or you're at the dinner table, or you're with the in-laws at Thanksgiving, and somebody says something. And you know what I'm talking about. They say something, and they just, it's like they took a 10-pound weight, and they just, boom, dropped it in the middle of the table, and the room goes, and everybody's heart rate increases, and everybody's hackles kind of go up. And one of the main responses that sometimes we find comfortable, uh, maybe not literally, but metaphorically, we like to take our fingers and stick them in our ears and close our eyes and go, la, 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 because we think if we just ignore the conflict, maybe when we open our eyes, it will simply have gone away. Have you ever seen that or done that? You try to just deny the fact that conflict is even there? Or there's maybe option number two. Somebody drops that 10-pound weight thump, into the middle of the Thanksgiving table and everybody's going, oh, this conversation's happened before and it's not going to be good. And so you whip out the cell phone and go, have I shown you my recent cat videos? Because we know that distraction can be a tempting means of responding to conflict. But what we've seen, and what I think if we're honest, if we admit it, is that neither denial nor distraction can break the cycle of constantly escalating conflict. We can maybe put it off for a while. We can maybe shove it down a little deeper, but it will never bring any true restoration or healing. And so what does the church do? A few things stand out to me about their response If you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe highlight a few of these verses. Go back, read through it again, and maybe note the concrete actions they took. First of all, it struck me that the apostles said, it would not be right for us to be distracted from our ministry of teaching the word of God. See, the apostles remembered that the first thing Jesus had given them to do, that Jesus tasked them to do, is Jesus said, I've just taught you for three years. Your job is to pass my teaching on to the next generation of the church. The first thing the church did in the midst of conflict was they stopped and they said, what's our mission statement? What do we really exist for? Let's keep God's purposes first amidst all that's happening. Second, it strikes me that they quite quickly named the conflict, and acknowledged the reality of conflict. In our world of denial or distraction, the church chose to admit they had a problem. And they simply put it out on the table. The third thing they did was they were inclusive and they distributed power broadly in their solution. If you look at the list of the names of the men that were chosen to lead... The text makes it pretty clear that most of those men were probably Hellenistic Jews. Those were not 
Hebrew names. Those were Greek names. And so what the church said is to the power or to the people in our community who have been disenfranchised, we are going to give them the power to resolve the conflict in our midst. They shared authority and were inclusive in leadership in order to resolve the problems in their midst. And last but not least, although it it might even sound too simplified to, to, to acknowledge, but I think it's profound. They took action. They brought the men together and they said, you need to fix this problem so get to work. And I say get to work because think again about it. At this point, the church was a few thousand people. So they were daily distributing food to thousands of people. If you got put in charge of making sure there was a meal ready every day for thousands of people, I think you would call that hard work. The church stayed focused on their mission. They admitted they had a problem. They were inclusive in their leadership solution, and they distributed power to make sure the problem could be solved. And then they worked hard to right the wrongs that caused the conflict. So what are some of the conclusions that we should draw from this story about the church? What are some of the conclusions that might be relevant for us in our own lives, in our church community, and in our national circumstance? Here's the first thing that I see. Uh, It comes straight out of the long tradition of the Old Testament of God's prophets constantly speaking God's vision of community to his people. For Christ followers, inequality is unacceptable. And injustice is intolerable. When the community saw an inequality in their midst that to some degree was evidence of injustice, they immediately set out to fix the problem because those things will not be tolerated among people who have been given from God the gift of new life, not because we've earned it, but because God says all people are equally deserving of his love and grace. Therefore, God's people will treat all humans with equality. Second, we see the activity of the church a direct counter to the world's way of dealing with conflict. I mean, in a sense, if we think about the story of Samson and the foxes and the Philistines, that escalation of conflict is, it's kind of a downward spiral of things getting worse and worse and worse. And we all know what it's like to get stuck in a downward spiral in our lives where we just feel like we're getting sucked down the drain and we have no control over it. But the church made an intentional choice to move from the downward spiral of conflict and to the virtuous cycle of blessing. When conflict and inequality came in their midst, they said the solution to this problem is making sure we treat everyone with equality and we are blessing our community with an equal distribution of food. And you know what happened as a result of it? As a result of the church's ability to commit 
to blessing instead of division, to commit to a virtuous cycle instead of a downward spiral. The end of the story says their numbers grew rapidly. The community around them in in, uh, Jerusalem saw this radical expression of God's grace and were in awe of it. And even the priests in the temple committed their lives to following Christ and joining the Christian community. So that brings us back to your life and my life, to the Thanksgiving table, to the national political debates going on, to our varied responses to coronavirus in our community and in the world around us. See, the question we have to ask as Christ followers is not, will conflict happen in my life? The question we have to ask as a community, Centennial Covenant Church, is not, will conflict arise in our church? The question we have to ask as Americans and citizens of planet Earth is not, will we experience conflict? That's not the question. Rather, the question is, when conflict arises, because it will, or it already has, when conflict arises, how will we respond? Because our response, empowered by the Holy Spirit, dependent on God, just might be the difference between a jawbone and the death of thousands and the generosity of a community for the good of thousands. In the conflict in your life, how will you respond? I want to spend some time right now challenging us to make that response a matter of concerted prayer. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time right now and we're going to pray together. Um, I know that maybe your home is crazy. Maybe you've got kids running around, so I recognize this could be challenging. If you need to, maybe just pause the YouTube video right now, and after the kids are in bed or when you have a quiet time, maybe come back to this, because I'd really encourage you to take this as a serious chance to make prayer your concerted response to the conflict in your life. And here's what we're going to do. I want us to pray for three things. First, I want us to pray for whatever conflict we are personally experiencing in our life. And I want our prayer not to be all about what we have to say to God. Rather, I want our prayer to be simply taking that conflict, that relationship, that person, and bringing it to God and saying, God, show me what to do. Second, I want us to pray for our church Now, I'm really glad, it's really fortunate, we don't have any explosive conflict in our midst. But I do know that we have disagreements, we have differences of opinion, we have different points of view, and any time there's difference, we are at risk of conflict. And even if there's not conflict now, we know there has been conflict in our past, and there will be conflict in our future. It's just the reality of human life. So I want us to pray for Centennial Covenant Church that we would be committed to responding to conflict with blessing as God would have us. And third, 
I want us to pray for our country. Because I don't need to explain to anybody how serious the division and the conflict is in our country today and how that conflict is both bringing about the loss of life in many different ways, shapes, and form and causing fear and division and brokenness in ways that are, quite frankly, overwhelming. It doesn't matter what news channel you watch. We are being flooded with images of the escalating conflict all around us. And therefore, we must be people committed to reject the escalation happening around us and work instead for God's blessing. And so if you would now find a comfortable place to sit or stand if you like, close your eyes and would you pray with me? And God, we acknowledge that there's many things on our hearts and swirling in our minds. Help us right now to try and set those aside so that we might be fully aware, deep in our bones, of your presence with us. I'd encourage you, maybe just take two or three big deep breaths. to remind yourself that God's presence is even closer than the air you breathe. And first, I'd ask you to call to mind again that interpersonal conflict that you might be experiencing in your life right now. Maybe even call the name or the face or the circumstance to mind. And I'd invite you to simply hold that conflict almost like holding it in your hands, hold it up before God and say, God, speak to me. And may we hear the voice of God speaking into the conflict in our lives. And second, I'd ask you to call to mind this community, this church we call Centennial Covenant Church. And in whatever way this looks, literally just hold God's people, Centennial Covenant, hold that in prayer up to God and say, God, show me how to pray for my church. a church that responds to any conflict by staying focused on God's mission and committed to God's blessing. And finally, hold our country in your hands before God in prayer, confessing the sins of our brokenness as a nation, as a people, both as a whole society and also as individuals and bringing our country before God, holding it up to God in prayer.
And God, we acknowledge that in our lives, personally, in our church community, and in our country, we face conflicts, great and small, and the weight of conflict is heavy. Show us, God, how to respond. Show us how to reject the escalation of conflict and embrace the blessing of your presence. In the conflict in your life, cry to God right now, God, how might I respond?